Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. 50 years ago, mankind took a giant leap as America successfully landed three humans on the moon. Today, we're remembering this monumental event in world history as we celebrate Apollo 11's mission and what it meant for the future of space exploration. We've invited astrophysicist Paul Sutter, agent to the stars, to discuss the science behind this lunar mission and how to set the stage for human spaceflight for decades to come. Plus, we'll explore what's next on the horizon as our country is making new strides to return to space and maybe even put a human on Mars. Buckle up as we take this discussion to infinity and beyond. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. Uh, Dr. Sutter, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for yeah. having me. Well, people may remember you because we've talked before we've on the chatted Weather Geeks before. before. And what were we? We were talking about all kinds of interesting uh, things. We were talking that. about uh, space. We were talking about science communication, yes. the importance of communicating science uh, for general public awareness. Yes. That was a fun conversation. It really was. And so uh, obviously we enjoyed it enough that we had to have you yeah. back. Let me give the listeners a little your background just in case. In case they don't remember your previous appearance on the Weather Geeks podcast, he's an astrophysicist at Ohio State University, has a PhD in physics from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. I think they mean Champaign-Urbana. I don't know how... Is it? It's Urbana-Champaign. It is Urbana-Champaign. So most of the university is at, like, minutia here, most of the university is in Urbana. Yes. And so it's the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Ah, so that's UIUC. why... UIUC. Uh, that's why it gets led with. That's right. He has a BS from phys- in physics from Cal Polytech, uh, where he was summa cum laude, computer science at Emory-Riddle Aeronautical University. He spent three years at the Paris Institute of Astrophysicists. Oui. Physics, I should say. We oui, we. Oui. And I understand that you actually have a new affiliation, too, that I just learned about as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. This summer, I'm joining the Flatiron Institute right. as a visiting scholar. This is a research institute funded by the Simons Foundation in New York. Uh, yeah, I know you were saying you were moving to New York, and that's why. So I, I want to just dive right in Let's here. Let's do it. Because our, our current generation is much more accustomed to the idea of human spaceflight, uh, perhaps than the Apollo generation when uh, it was really a challenge of uh, technology and engineering and uh, patriotism, frankly, mm-hmm. uh, when those Apollo missions were taking place. Now it seems that the perspective on human spaceflight has changed. Give us your perspective on that change from the Apollo era to today. Right, right. So the Apollo era, for a few years leading up to the Apollo mission, we had sent stuff into space, starting with Sputnik, the Explorer missions, like all these satellites. We're used to the idea of robots and satellites in space. Sending a person into space is a whole other ball game, a completely different set of challenges, not just in terms of weight, but in terms of life support. And we had all these questions like, 
Can you swallow food right. in zero gravity? Can you digest and absorb nutrients? Will your eyeballs work right in zero gravity? Just all these fundamental questions that we had to answer one by one to lead up to the actual lunar landing. And how long can we last in space? How do we how do we supply food? How do we eliminate waste? How do we keep the astronauts breathing the whole time? So there were all these questions that just had to be answered. Fundamental biological, technological, and engineering questions. And we figured it out. Mm -hmm. It took years and it took billions, tens of billions of dollars, but we figured it out. And now, and it was surprising how quickly human spaceflight seemed routine. Like, oh, they're sending people up into space. Like, you know, how many people were sent up into space this year? Right. And we didn't even really pay attention unless you were a space geek. Well, wh I was going to ask you, why do you think, because there was this sort of, I guess, glory day or glory period for the Apollo program. And then things just sort of. Very sort of quickly. Slacked. I mean, we, we transitioned, I guess, to the space shuttle era in terms of the kind of key aspects of the U.S. space program. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you know, there's still a space activity, human activity in space. We've had various space stations in orbit. Right. Uh, or, uh, but why do you think there was sort of this uh, loss of momentum, if you will? It's very interesting. I think this speaks more about culture and human nature, that we did the moon landing. It was impressive. Everyone was blown away. We did a few more moon landings. and then, But as the moon landings went on, People became less and less interested. Like, oh, another moon landing? Okay, I guess. Other things became more important culturally, like the Vietnam War, like the economic depression and recession. It's just people just had focused on other things. Yeah. And then the appetite for spending that ridiculous amount of money became less and less because they didn't see the the value in it. Like, yeah. oh, it's major political milestone, major cultural and technological marvel. Now what? Right. And and, and and we and we both know that there were so many things that today we use in society that emerged from that space right, program. Right, but it was hard to communicate that at the time because exactly. it took years and decades to develop that technology right. or, or to mainstream it and commercialize it. Where now so many technological aspects of our lives flowed from the Apollo program specifically and the space program in general, but that took years and decades to right. come about. And, and in the seventies, it wasn't that apparent. Like how, how useful is this investment? Right. Uh, and then with the, the space shuttle, there was of course a lot of interest in the space shuttle, but for various political reasons, the space shuttle wasn't designed as optimally as it should have been. It couldn't go very far in space. It couldn't do many things. Uh, it wasn't as reusable. It wasn't as cheap as it was originally planned to be. And we had this the International Space Station, which was, you can kind of sort of say, was designed to give the space shuttle something to do. Right. Otherwise, there really wasn't much to, to do with the space shuttle right. except build a space station. Right. Uh, and the space station is in orbit today. We still have astronauts and cosmonauts on board it today. What seems to be different now with the era we're living in, with the generation we're living in now, is the rise of the private space company. Yes, the SpaceX and SpaceX is in Blue Origins yes. and Bigelow Aerospace. And this is a very new thing. Right. This was not 
familiar to the Apollo generation or the space shuttle era. These are private companies just doing whatever they want in space. Like mm -hmm. I want to build reusable rockets and I'm going to send people to Mars done and I'm going to collect the money to do it. And we're just going to make it happen. What are your, what are your, what are your thoughts on this notion of, you know, the, I know there's some, a, some tension there and some push pull and some debate or some optimism, even about this notion of the private sector emerging in the space programs. What are your thoughts? Because I mean, I, I think it makes sense, but the reality is space travel and space uh, access still isn't trivial. There's still a lot of danger there. Um, do you feel this is a public uh, process only, like firefighting and policing in our communities? Or are you okay with the private uh, sector jumping in the game? Yeah, I actually love the idea of the private sector jumping in the game. Of course, there are risks. Of course, there's a lot of technological improvements that need to be made to get us back to the moon on a long-term basis or out to Mars or to asteroids. But it's when it's private money, this whole discussion or this whole, what we just talked about with the waning of the interest in the Apollo missions, because it's public money. And if the public is interested, thinks that money should be better spent elsewhere, then, you know, that's the whole political process of spending federal money. But when it's private money and it's just a few rich people pooling their resources and convincing other people to do it, and they can actually have a longer term vision, which is the most odd thing in this whole picture is NASA is forced to change visions every two to four years mm -hmm. with every new administration, with every new congressional budget programs will be launched and then cut off. New programs will be spun up. Directions will change. Directors will change. Administrators will change, but the private sector can lay out a goal, a budget and say, yeah, it's going to take uh, 10 to 20 years to do this. But the private sector is used to making 10, 20, 30 year investments before a payoff and it's their money. So if the public says, oh, we don't want this anymore, well, it's private money. They're spending their own money. Right. They're not spending my money. They're spending their money. It's a very, very different picture. Uh, than it was with the Apollo Air and the Space Shuttle. That, that that makes sense. That that's a good point. I want to circle back to something you said about sort of the complacency factor that we mm. with space because it, this is weather geeks and I actually observed the same type of thing in a way I was thinking about this as you were talking because you know we haven't had a I, I think Mike Smith wrote an article in uh, the Washington Post just in the last week or so on the fact that we haven't had an aircraft or an airplane crash from wind shear. Uh, in 25 oh, years. Wow. And that used to be a significant hazard in the meteorological community. But I think because of successes like that, the fact that we see nine days out that Hurricane Sandy is going to make a hard mm -hmm. lap, people take weather forecasts for granted as well, or just, uh, you know, when they're, you know, they, they, they should be able to get everything right. Now right, because right. We, so it's just an interesting parallel as I was thinking about what you were saying. Because this is Weather Geeks now, I, I actually want to geek out with you because you're one of the Let's top experts. It. And I just want to get- Why else am I here? You're here to geek out. And so what? what's the science? I mean, you know, what's the science behind how we get a rocket to the moon? Oof. Man, like what I, one of the things I love about the Apollo missions and then now looking ahead to future Mars missions is the different combinations of sciences and engineering and mathematics. I mean, this is, if you want a STEM thing, a rocket is a STEM science, technology, right. engineering, math thing. Right. That is a product of STEM or perhaps STEM is a product of um, rocketry yes. and the Apollo missions. You have, uh, you have chemistry, 
to develop the, the rocket fuel and the ignition. You have engineering to develop rocket engines. Rocket engines are among, and in some cases, the most complex machines ever devised by humanity. Okay, it's not an easy or trivial thing to blow something up in a controlled, in a controlled fashion manner, right? for a long time, send it out of a very specifically designed nozzle to make something achieve escape velocity. That is not an easy thing. So just the engineering of controlling the flow of the fluids and the materials at these extreme temperatures, the engineering of, of design and materials for the, the rocket nozzles and tubes and the spacecraft mm -hmm. itself the human and biology science that goes into it about how do we combat the effects of weightlessness how do we preserve and sustain life on these multi-day long missions or now we have we have astronauts in the space station that will be there for over for, a year for a year more right of, of just the pure biology and what we're learning from that and that what we have to apply to that and going all the way to just, you know, Newtonian gravity of calculating trajectories and orbits and making sure we can land something on the moon and bring it right back right. from the moon and meet up with another spacecraft and the spacecraft combined comes back to earth and, and just managing all of that and the, the electronics and the circuitry that is powering even from the Apollo mission use one of the most powerful computers in the world. One of the first major innovations mm. in uses of microchips was in the Apollo mission. Wow. I could go on. Like, it's just crazy. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast, and I'm geeking out with Dr. Paul Sutter, who's an astrophysicist, and uh, you heard about all of his credentials in the opening of the show, and he just said he can go on. So let's take him up on that and go on. Uh, I, I as weather geeks, you're talking about the various science involved in getting a rocket to the moon and perhaps beyond. I think there's even some atmospheric or weather-related things there as well, because I know that there are certain weather conditions uh, required for launch of these rockets mm -hmm. uh, on re-entry when we're bringing humans back. Uh, the atmosphere. Talk about the role that the atmosphere plays as uh, rockets or or even other vehicles. space bodies or yeah. vehicles are re-entering the atmosphere. Right. So the Earth's atmosphere is the break at the end of a space mission. We use the atmosphere to slow down spacecraft. So even orbit, if you're in orbit, you're traveling at tens of thousands of miles per hour. The Earth rotates at the equator at a thousand miles per hour. So you have to go from tens of thousands of miles per hour to a thousand to actually land safely. Otherwise, it's just splat. So you got to slow down. 
And you got to slow down a lot. And the atmosphere plays a huge role in that. So if you see the footage from the, from the Apollo mission, they have these capsules coming down. They have the big parachutes. The big parachutes are using air drag and air resistance to slow down the descent. And even at the initial entry, the bottom of the capsule or the bottom of the space shuttle are these massive heat-resistant tiles. They're using the atmosphere to slow down. But man, when you're going through the atmosphere at tens of thousands of miles per hour, it's hot. It generates it, a lot of heat because of friction, right? It it and actually drag. most of the heat comes from the actual body of the spacecraft compressing, compressing. the yeah, so the it's an adiabatic process. Yes, it's compressing the air in front of it. Wow. The air heats up from that compression, and then that is what lights on fire. Now that you, becomes a plasma. You, you know, let me sort of explain this geek term yeah. that I use because I mentioned the word adiabatic, which is a, a word in physics we often talk about when there's no exchange or transfer of heat in and out of a system. And so uh, when you compress air, I mean, it can warm adiabatically. You know? mm -hmm. You're yeah. just squeezing it. Yeah, you're squeezing, you're just squeezing it. it and making it hot. Same, uh, the opposite thing happens to air for you weather geeks out there. When a parcel of air or volume of air rises, it can cool adiabatically. There's no exchange of heat in or out of the parcel. And so you can cool that down to the dew point and you get condensation. And that's kind of how clouds form. So a little weather geek sort of synergy here. I want to stay on that thought there. One of my producers wanted to know about the weather forecast uh, 50 years ago uh, at Kennedy Space Station. Uh, uh, do, do you have a sense of what it would have? I don't imagine it would have had to been clear conditions, certain uh, levels of clouds. Would yeah, yeah. So I don't I don't know the specific Conditions, except it was clear for launch, but this is something on every space launch. NASA and the private companies are very, very closely monitoring the weather. Uh, Florida was chosen as a site, not for the weather. Weather isn't exactly ideal. Yeah, in fact, part Central Florida, <laughs> quiet is kept. I did some of my doctoral work and on the, the on thunderstorms and convection and it's actually a worst case scenario in mm -hmm. the summertime because of all the sea breeze convection and the interacting outflow boundaries and the peninsula effect. Yeah, but it was chosen because it's close to the equator. Uh -huh. So the earth rotates at a thousand miles per hour at the equator and zero miles per hour at the North Pole or and also the South Pole. And you want to give your rocket as much a uh, a cheat as possible to get as much boost as possible. So you want to launch as close to the equator as possible. This is why the European Space Agency, their launch facilities are in off the coast of French Guiana, Guiana in South right. America near the equator. Right. Uh, and so that's why Florida was chosen and also infrastructure reasons, not because of the weather. And man, if the number one reason for scrubbing launches is weather. Right. Let me throw some fun facts out there and get Paul's reaction to them. I'm just going to read a All few All the reactions these. will be wow. Yeah, that, you know, we're having a serious geek out here. Uh, Apollo 11 was powered by a Saturn V rocket, which stood 364 feet tall. That's uh, a 36-story building or taller than the Statue of Liberty. Wow. Why did it have to be so big? Oh, it had to be big because we were sending a lot of stuff to the moon. Right. And if you've got a lot of stuff, you need a big rocket and you need a lot of fuel, but fuel itself is heavy. So you need a bigger rocket with more fuel to lift the fuel that will get you to the moon. Right. So it's just the only way to do it is you need 
a big, bad, powerful rocket. And we're probably going to talk about this a bit later in the podcast because I know with some of the newer rocket systems uh, that uh, that NASA and some of the other private companies are exploring, I think there's some pretty large rockets that some are going big to start rockets. to reappear. The thing is, after the Apollo missions, we didn't build rockets as powerful. Right. So, like, even today, even right now, if we said, you know what, we're going to spend $50 billion and we'd like to send some astronauts to the moon next week, we couldn't do it. Right. We don't have we a rocket do not big enough. have a rocket big enough. Well, I, what about, I've heard of something called the SLS is a space right, launch system right, right. and the Orion carrier on top yeah, of that. Yeah, yeah. So this is NASA's next plan for a big bag, big bad rocket. It's called the Space Launch System, SLS, and it's a giant rocket. Yeah. And the uh, Orion capsule will be a crew-rated capsule to sit on top of that giant rocket. Competing against the NASA efforts are the private companies. We have, for example, SpaceX is developing something they call the Falcon Heavy, which is a big giant rocket. Yeah, so we are going back to the – I was visiting Kennedy Space Center with my family a couple of years ago, and they, they were showing us some of the construction there for some of the big heavy launch vehicles that are, are emerging. A little weather angle on that. I uh, The uh, the NASA systems, some of these large rocket systems, are parts of them are built in New Orleans. And a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. there was a tornado, uh, actually. It ravaged through the, the Michaud facility yeah, there. Yeah, Michaud facility, yeah, yeah. And actually caused some damage to that facility. Which that facility is gigantic. It is huge. I've, it's I've giant. Seen like it. they make big giant rocket parts, and so it's a big giant factory. It's a, yeah, exactly. Some other fun facts: um, the Apollo weighed five hundred twenty-five thousand, a hundred thousand pounds, empty, six point four million pounds loaded. The Apollo Saturn V's five boosters generated seven point five million pounds of thrust. That's more power than eighty-five Hoover dams. Mm. A, wow. car, a car that gets 30 miles per the gallon could travel around the world 800 times with the amount of fuel used by the Saturn V lunar landing mission. Um, a shout out to our Weather Geeks producers here for some of these. They, they do a great job with uh, some of the facts here that we, we were able to share with you on the podcast. What are your reactions? To those? It just really shows how much power it took and how much power it's going to take if we're going to go to the moon and beyond again. Right, right. And the fuel itself. Rocket fuel isn't the most exotic thing in the world. Yeah. Rocket fuel is kerosene. Rocket fuel is liquid oxygen. Wow. Liquid o- and liquid hydrogen. Those th- that's rocket fuel. It's simple stuff. You just mix them together and light them on fire and it goes boom out one end. Right. And but that just gives you a sense. It's not every day that we go tens of thousands of miles per hour. Probably the fastest any of us have ever gone have been in a jet airliner, and that's hundreds of miles an hour. Hundreds of miles an hour. To get into orbit, to get to the moon, we're talking tens of thousands of miles per hour. That's why you have that massive amount of fuel. That's why it needs to burn for so long. That's why for 100,000 pounds of actual Stuff that you want to send to the moon to actually do your mission. You need millions of pounds of fuel. That's why. You just got to go fast. And we don't have a lot of ways of going fast. Exactly. Now, I want to shift gears a little bit. Maybe even get a little teeny tiny a bit controversial. All we'll, right. We'll, let's do it. I'm we'll ready. See. Yeah, we'll see. You know, yeah, and there, there are people that will ask, why do we go to the moon? I, I think people have a, a sense of why we went to the moon in the Apollo era. But I've, I've heard questions and discussions about why we are going back to the moon. Why are we spending resources to do mm-hmm. that? Mm-hmm. How would you answer that question? Right. That is a very good question. The Apollo missions were mostly political. We saw the, the Soviets 
beating us at every stage in the space race. This was a national security question. This was a national pride and prestige and superpower question. And that's maybe that's led to why interest faded so quickly. Like, okay, we did it. Been there, done that. Been there, done that. Yep. Now what? Yeah. So now as we're replanning to go to the moon or even to Mars, these questions come up and they're valid questions. It's valid. It's okay to ask, what is the point of going to the moon? There are technological benefits that will come out of it in 10, 20, or 30 years. You can debate whether the amount of money invested actually leads to that a significant value of return. That's a fair question. That's a fair thing to talk about. We can talk about it in terms of just, well, this, these are what humans do. We've been exploring ever since we've been humans, and this is just another place to explore. It's, it's in our DNA. We can talk about it in terms of, of existentialism, of if we really want to look for the long-term outlook of humanity, then we eventually have to get off the earth. Because eventually a giant rock is going to hit us. Eventually yes. the sun's going to cook us. Like it's just going to happen. It's only a matter and of we're time. not helping things with the climate uh, There's aspects that as too. well. There's yes. that too. Uh, but that's another reason, going back to the private companies, why I love private investment in space travel so much. Because as long as no one bugs me about how I spend my money, I'm not going to bug other people about how they spend their money. Great point. So it 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 kind of makes it puts it off the table of of okay if the public has an appetite or not. Well, the people who are actually spending their dollars on it do care, and so more power to them. Now, I mean, with the moon, I mean there are people that talk about potential mining or water or mm -hmm. ice on the at the moon and thing resources that we can extract. Is that a credible argument or is the moon simply a staging ground to get us to Mars? Right. The moon itself is most likely just going to serve as a staging ground or a long-term base. We talk about resources there, not in terms of extraction and bringing them back to Earth for our own fun and profit, but rather, you know, okay, if we're going to have people living on the moon, they might need some water. They might get thirsty every once in a while. Is there any water on the moon? And yes, there's frozen water inside the crust of, of right. the moon. But when you look at things like asteroids, there's a single asteroid, uh, 16 Psyche, I believe is its name. It's a metal-rich asteroid. If you were to bring it back to Earth, it has enough gold I in that asteroid. Isn't this crazy? At the current market value, which of course the market would crash, but at the current market value, every single person on earth would be a multi-billionaire with the amount this. of gold in this one asteroid. Right. There are resources, all the resources you, we have on earth that we dig up are in space in asteroids. Sure. There is definite potential real market industrial possibilities there. Right. But when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins uh, were sort of landing on the moon, headed to the moon and eventually making their way to the surface, uh, they did not go there with the intent to find stuff in the ground as right. much as they went right. there to say we landed there. Right. What do, you, what do you think it felt like to them when they landed? I mean, I'm just, I've always... What, what was that experience like? You know, it's interesting because you can listen to the transcript. You can read the transcripts. You can listen to the transmissions. You, so you hear everything they're saying. Yeah. And on the surface of, of, of what they're saying, it's business. 
this is a job. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, we do this thing. Okay, we've successfully landed. Okay, what's next on the checklist? Like, like we, we've got a mission, a literal mission, and we've got a list of things to do. And so we're just going to do them. And so I wonder if most of their brain power was just devoted to just solving problems, doing things, getting the job done. They did remark later, like Neil Armstrong thought that the surface of the moon was, was beautiful, eerily beautiful. Buzz Aldrin thought it was eerily ugly. So they, <laughs> and desolate. So, so they did have time for personal thought and right. reflection. Uh, Buzz Aldrin took communion on the surface of the moon. They had moments there. They had to wait for their capsule to depressurize, which took about a half hour. So they're just standing around for a half hour, you know, thinking about being on the moon. It was definitely an alien landscape. Yeah. It was definitely no human being had ever experienced. They knew that no human being has ever experienced that before. Uh, the sense of loneliness and isolation and remoteness was almost overwhelming. And I'm sure it was just this mix of get the job done, do the things on the checklist Pause, take a moment that this really is a watershed moment in human history. And yet, as you're standing on the, the, the lunar surface, um, there's this blue marble called mm -hmm. Earth that you just came from. That, that, this that little, be, little, little blue marble. Yeah, a little water, aqueous planet, right. mostly with water. That's, that's amazing. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and we're geeking out and also reflecting on the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 mission, which was a historic mission. It's a mission that has greater significance than uh, the American or NASA mission itself. It was a, a, minute, a mission of humanity, I think. And so that was very important. I want to spend this last segment of the podcast talking about now the future and mm -hmm. about some other challenges we see in the world of science and astronomy and, and so forth. Uh, we want to go back to Mars and we want to go to the, the moon, I should say. And I've actually heard people refer to it as going forward to the moon. Sure. Yeah, because they don't want to see where it's like, like, we're just like going back. Okay. We're going forward That's nice spin. to the moon. Right, I'll, sure. I'll, I'll subscribe to yeah, that. Yeah, I've heard that used in, forward in some Forward to the moon. Yeah. Okay. But with the point of getting to Mars, why do we why do we want to go to Mars? Why not? Yeah, why, why right. Right, right. No, it's it's uh it's the next thing. Yeah. It's the next step. Mars is along with Venus, our our neighbor in the solar system, closer than most asteroids, almost all the asteroids. Looks interesting, seems dusty and a little red, but, you know, it's another planet. It's another milestone. It's another thing. It's another way to push ourselves. Do you I want do you think because there are a generation of people that came up in the Apollo era and I mean, you, you watch movies like Hidden Figures or Apollo mm -hmm. 13 or what, what not. And you have the entire world, little kids, uh, older people in awe. They were hanging on their radios yeah. or the visuals. 
do you think it will take that type of moment where there is an astronaut landing on the surface of Mars to generate that level of excitement with our space program? I really think so. I really think so. If we go forward to the moon, that moment of landing, I'm sure will have massive public interest, a lot of commentary. I don't think you'll have a big impact the way Apollo 11 had an impact. But if we send someone to Mars and get someone on Mars and they return safely, massive impact. What, speaking of return, I mean, I don't have a sense. This is not my area of expertise. I'm, I'm a meteorologist. What are the time frames that mm. we're talking about to get from the moon to Mars and back? Yeah, so if you want to go to, like, the Apollo mission was like eight days. Round trip, spend some time on the moon, come back. You're looking a week, a week trip. That's a vacation. A <laughs> uh, trip to Mars, the way the orbits work out and the distances, you're talking six to nine months to get there. Minimum six minimum, to nine months. Wow. Minimum. Then you're talking a few months on the surface because you have to wait for the orbits to align again in the six to nine months back. Wow. You're talking one and a half to two years round trip. That's not a vacation. That's no, not a vacation. No, that's 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 part of your life. And I, that's and part I, of I, your I, life. I, I suspect that's why there are efforts to understand now sort of long duration impacts of exactly, space on human body, exactly. body metabolism. And, and not just biologically, but uh, psychologically. psychologically sure. Like you're going to be crammed in a tiny spacecraft with a few other people for two years. That's a lot different than a week-long mission yeah. to the moon. So that's why we're doing long-duration experiments on the International Space Station. Uh, that's why the technological challenges, it's not just like double the moon challenges. It's a whole other ballgame to get to Mars because of the duration of that mission. When they get to Mars, and, and maybe this is something you, I, I suspect you probably have some thoughts on this. Are they essentially going to have to set up shop and generate their own water and those types of things like we see in some of the movies? Or is that just sort of Hollywood-esque? Yeah, there's, there's a couple different approaches here. One is you can send a bunch of missions in advance that are already at the landing site, already have supplies of water and return fuel and food. Uh, the other is you you generate your water, you generate your fuel on site. So you get to Mars, and then as soon as you land, you start pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, you start generating water, you start generating fuel for your return back. And you cross your fingers, that stuff works. Right. What's If you were to, given your sort of expertise, identify the three biggest challenges mm. to get to the moon or Mars from this point forward, I mean, what would you say are the, the biggest challenges that we face? I think the number one biggest challenge is cultural, of getting people excited, invested, and interested in long-term human habitation on other worlds, or at least long-term exploration and continued sustained exploration, not just doing it a few times and then calling it a day, not doing it for political reasons because that doesn't seem to stick over the course of decades, but doing it because we want to, and this is something we as a society want, whether public or private funded, of just having that cultural attitude that, yes, this is something that we as a people want to do and want to our children to continue doing after we're gone. I think that's the biggest challenge. I see that shift. I see that excitement growing. It'd be awesome to, to see it continue growing. The challenges of 
of long-term spaceflight for human bodies is something that really needs to be addressed, understood well, and have plenty of plans in place to to mitigate and allow people to not just come back but come back healthy mm. is a huge challenge. And then I think the other the 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 other challenge or the the of the top three challenges is the 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 distance to Mars is a real killer. That's a real pain in the neck. Yeah. That's a lot harder than going to to the moon. And if something goes wrong, you know, a relief mission isn't a few days yeah, away. It's, not it's like, like we have a space guard or like a coast yeah, guard. It's, there it's like yeah. it's another it's another year or two before relief comes. So yeah. just having that level of redundancy and assuredness in our technology, over half of Mars missions fail. Right. Our robotic probes. Even, so the, 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 the missions to get robotic probes yeah, and, and rovers there. Yeah. Half of them fail. And we better bring that failure rate way down before we start sending people there. Yeah. And I think there's, you know, the, to the brave astronauts and people have signed up for this, they, they take this on knowing those oh, yeah, risks for, for sure. sure. Now, in this last minute or two of the podcast, I just want to pick your brain because you're an, one of the top astrophysicists and astrophysics communicators in the world, I think. Oh, I appreciate that. And that's not just hyperbole. Just go check his work out. Um, what are the things that excite you or, or about just the world of astrophysics? What mm. are some of the big questions out there that, that you keep your eye on? Oh, man, there's so many questions, uh, which is great because we'd love really love to keep our day jobs and, and not have to go do other things. And as long as there are mysteries in the universe, we can keep being scientists. Yeah, We don't understand so many things, right. and it's great. We're hunting for other planets, planets outside of other stars. Uh, we're hunting for copies of the Earth. We're hunting for life in the universe. We're trying to understand the history of our universe. We're trying to understand the earliest moments of the Big Bang. We're trying to understand the future of our universe. We're trying to figure out how galaxies and stars evolve. We're trying to understand weird exotic states of matter like inside of neutron stars and white dwarfs. We're trying to understand how supernova go off. We're, there's just this laundry list of questions of things of our universe we just don't understand. What, what are your thoughts on the recent uh, discovery, I guess, of the event horizon of the black hole? Yeah, the event horizon telescope, the images of the black hole, the material swirling around that black hole. I think the event horizon telescope and, it, and the future follow-up observations, they're not going to tell us, this is my opinion, not going to tell us a lot about black holes themselves because so far it's just confirming what we already knew, but it will tell us a lot about the environments around black holes, which tells us how stars evolve, how galaxies themselves evolve. We're going to learn a lot of astrophysics from these images, uh, not necessarily a lot about gravity and relativity. Yeah. Last, last thought. Still We're, super cool though. It's super cool. Two, two thoughts then come to mind as we close. Uh, where can people find you on social media or in the internet? Yeah, people can follow me on all social channels. I'm at Paul Matt Sutter, P-A-U-L-M-A-T-T-S-U-T-T-E-R, or by going to my website, pmsutter.com, that has links to my podcast, my YouTube series, all my TV appearances, all my articles, just everything I do goes to that website. And final thought, if someone, there's some student listening to this or some parent who knows they have a child that's interested in astrophysics, piece of advice you'd give them? Oh, go ahead, get a degree, a bachelor's or even PhD in physics or astronomy. 
There are basically no jobs, but you can have a lifelong interest and passion and knowledge basically of this subject. Basically no jobs? Basically oh, no so jobs. So what, what would they do? They can, those skills oh, are transferable uh, so and other oh, things. Oh, yes, yeah. So there are basically no jobs in academia. Ah. There's no professorship positions. But physics and astronomy majors have essentially a 0% unemployment rate. Right. Uh, and you get high-paying jobs with you know, great adventures and great, uh, you know, job satisfaction and a lot of integrity and you can make big changes in the world, not necessarily doing physics and astronomy, but using those applied skills while you maintain a lifelong love and knowledge. And I, I, I think that's where we're going to have to end it as well. It's been such an honor to have you here at the oh, Weather Channel Studios. Thank you so much. Uh, we, we had you on. Uh, we're, you're one of our favorite guests. Uh, and so we'll end it there. And uh, again, just uh, want to celebrate the ingenuity and the boldness uh, of our country uh, to go forth to the moon in the Apollo era, which mm -hmm. is what we're sort of celebrating. But we'll also offer our thoughts, prayers, and encouragement yeah. as we move forward to the moon and beyond. Paul, thank forward you for joining. Forward to the moon. Yes. Thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. Continue to listen. We thank you so much. And haven't subscribed, go ahead and subscribe there at Apple Podcasts or on uh, Stitcher or listen to us on weloveweather.tv. Thank you again. And thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Mm -hmm.